But I have a new, I have a new Bible. It's called the Jesus Book. Well, it's actually not new. There is a new one though. It's the Before Jesus Book. So any of you know where, where you can get one of those? I need one of those. I don't remember where I was going with that one, but I finished it anyway. So. Okay. Um, do any of you know where Tajikistan is? not in the world. That doesn't work. That's not fair. Has anybody been to Tajikistan? Yes, ma'am? Oh, she was telling her husband something. I don't know where Tajikistan is, but I got this email from Tajikistan. It says, hi, iTech. I just returned from my trip to Tajikistan and China and had a very profound time. I thought I would attach some pictures of our team using IC. You all know what I see is? That's what happens when you don't know something and somebody explains it to you and then you say, I see. <laughs> Actually, I see stands for Indigenous Sight Enhancement and we need a word for the last E, so if you could help us out with that. It's, our, it's the Indigenous Peoples Technology and Education Center program for checking people's eyes and then prescribing glasses, which you and I would understand the value of that, right? And you and I would. And how many of you in here use glasses or contacts? Huh. Now you know what? In foreign countries there are fewer people that use eyeglasses. You know why? About the same number of people have problems with their eyes. But in places like where I grew up down in the jungles, if you don't have glasses, you don't live very long. So there's fewer people that need glasses down there than there are in other places. No, I'm serious. Okay, they said uh, uh, we use... Okay, said, uh, I don't want Wi-Fi either. I thought I would attach some pictures of our team using IC, but then also train the national team to use it in Tajikistan. It was used with great effectiveness and was embraced quickly by the national ministry there. I met a huge, it met a huge need, but also opened doors into new arenas of ministry. We visited ministry sites all over Tajikistan, and IC was used in schools... Now, if you have grandchildren and you want to tell them a story and you're making it up as you go, I suggest that you do what I'm doing. Look at your iPhone and they'll think that you're reading it, then they'll really like it. Um, let me see, where was I? On this one, you don't have to participate because I, I just have to find a place. Um, okay, oh, we, we visited ministry sites all over Tajikistan, and IC was used in schools with university professors, two prisons, sewing centers, and the ministry's own training center. Both Russian-speaking and Tajik-speaking people were given the gift of better sight, and it was such a joyous experience to then see them able to see and read with ease. And she goes on telling me that. Is that a great story or what? You know what? The first time somebody told me that a doctor was coming who could check my eyes, and if I couldn't see, he could help me see, I didn't want to go see a doctor. I didn't need a doctor. My eyes didn't hurt. They felt just fine. The problem that I had was in our school, if you couldn't play basketball, you were nobody. And uh, I wasn't that good at, uh, at basketball. Now, I could dribble the ball fine, but it was shooting the basket at the, uh, at the backstop and, and trying to figure out what angle to hit the backstop to make the ball go through the rim that I couldn't see. 
Now, when this man wanted to check my eyes, I didn't want to have my eyes checked, but my mom insisted that I go to him, and he checked my eyes a little bit, and he said, oh, Steve, I can help you. And I said, I don't think so. What I need to do is I need to know how to play basketball better. And he said, Steve, when I get done, you're going to be a better student. You're going to be, and I said, I don't need to be a better student. The teachers always liked me best, and the teachers always stood up in front, and they always gave me the prime spot right by them so I could, I could see the board. I didn't even glasses. Did you know what happened when this man gave me a pair of glasses? I realized two things. One is, I realized that all my friends, when they shot the basket, they could actually see that little round rim, which I had never seen unless I was really close. From the free throw line, there was no rim. The other thing that I noticed, and those of you who were a little bit older when you got your first pair of glasses, I'll bet you noticed the same thing. The trees have individual leaves. <laughs> Is that something or what? Do you know what? Uh, a couple of years ago, I started thinking about uh, the man who had given me my first pair of glasses died. And I started thinking of all the people who wouldn't have been able to, to do the things. I mean, we wouldn't have been the basketball stars that we turned out to be. And we wouldn't have, there were a lot of things that, that I was able to do after I got these little things put in front of my eyes that I couldn't do before. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me that there were millions and millions and millions of people in the world today that couldn't see and they couldn't read. Older women in communities where they had to make a contribution or amongst the people that I grew up in relation with the wild hunting, if somebody got to the age, men where they couldn't go out and hunt, or women where they couldn't uh, weave hammocks or net bags or things, you know what was expected of them and what they did? They would just sit in their hammock until they died. And their own family would live around them and nobody would bring them food. That was the way they did it because they could not afford to sustain people, they couldn't make a contribution. You know what gave those people a much, much greater longevity and life expectancy? Was from the people that couldn't see got reading glasses so that the women could still weave the, uh, the, the, uh, the palm fronds into string and could still weave hammocks. And when the men could see and, and could still go out and hunt. Now, when Grandfather Minkai and I were traveling around the States once, we were having a really bad time because people found out that we had, we had some blowguns with us. And so everybody wanted to have a blowgun demonstration. But it was really embarrassing because Grandfather Minkai, who grew up in the jungles, I mean, grew up hunting as a way of life, and that's... Now, see, i got to explain it. In the jungles, in the Amazon, they have huge, huge grocery stores. But the meat department is running around, and so you need blowguns to go to the meat department to bring it home. And when you're going around, Grandfather, they would bring us these helium balloons. We were supposed to shoot the helium balloons, and Grandfather was, you know, shooting walls and shooting the ceiling, and very seldom a, uh, uh, a helium balloon. So a man in the in the audience one night said, "You know what? I don't think Grandfather can see." I said, "Well." Why didn't I think of that? So he took us down to his office, and he gave Grandfather Minkai a pair of glasses. 
And that was really great for the rest of that tour. But every other time grandfathers come back to the States, he leaves his glasses down in the jungles. It's pathetic. I mean, one, one night I was holding the balloon because it wasn't a helium balloon. And instead of shooting the balloon, grandfather and Kaya shot a poison tip dart into the uh, Yamaha brand piano. <laughs> and uh, somehow I didn't think that they appreciated that a great deal. So from then on, grandfather started holding the balloon and I started shooting, but that's not what people wanted. And grandfather taught me how to shoot the uh, balloon, but uh, you know what? That's just one of those little things that we take for granted. So I thought, you know what? That man that came down to Ecuador and checked my eyes and gave me a pair of glasses, I would like to reciprocate. I'd like to do that for other people. So we designed the IC program. And if you go see us back there, uh, Jamie, my son Jamie, is, did Jamie come in? Do I know who he is? <laughs> no. Jamie's our son that uh, he, he is in touch with his feminine side. He has a wife, a female puppy, and six little girls. He says that every family has a certain amount of testosterone. Some have to spread it around and some it's concentrated. What I do know is that Jamie, the only thing that he has to offset that is he has a sports car. And sometimes he just has to go out after he's been watching chick flicks over and over and over. And yes, they make chick flicks in cartoon versions. And then he just goes and gets in his in his sports car and just races around the block, you know, three or four times, goes and kicks trees and things, and then he's okay. <laughs> so we started the IC program, and Jamie can show it to you back there. We put we put glasses, negative powers on a la on a lens ladder, so that people can prescribe it for themselves. We made a chart. A lot of people don't know letters, and there are different alphabets. So we we thought, well, everybody has a hand. So now. The person whose eyes we're checking can hold the uh, the lens ladder in front of their face, and they look at the chart that has a hand in different positions. And all you have to do, because you know sometimes we don't speak their language, you just point at the top hand that's about this big, and you put your hand in that in that position, and immediately everybody intuitively knows. And now a lot of people don't need glasses. Uh, we also do a screening to see if they have. Uh, cornea, uh, you know, uh, if they have scarring on their cornea, or if they have uh, cataracts. Now, this is a pretty complex program, and it, we were finding that it was taking us up to an hour and a half to train people like you how to do this. And so what we did is we made a nonverbal training video, which is how we do it, so that you can check somebody's eyes in a language that you don't know, and then you can teach somebody how to do it in a language that you don't know so they can do it in a language that they do know, so that while they're checking people's eyes, they can talk about the one who gives a spiritual sight. It's really a great program, but for me, you know, it was all kind of theoretical. I knew what it had done for me, but imagine what it means to me to get a letter from Tajikistan from somebody I've never met from, from a place that I've I don't know where it is. I mean, if it's a stand, it's probably in the old Soviet republics or close to there, but I have no idea where Tajikistan is. And you know what? There's people over in Tajikistan tonight that can see because a man came and checked my eyes. Okay, that's the Tajikistan story. Okay.
Um, Jenny said the next one should be, oh, Korea. Have any of you been in Korea? Koreans don't know. <laughs> now you know what? It's, it's amazing how easy it is to be ignorant of a place until you go visit. Now as a man started calling me from Korea, he said he wanted me to come, and I asked him why he wanted me to come, and uh, he said because a lot of people over here know of your story. Now he was wrong because it wasn't my story, but he was talking about a story that God wrote over the last 50 years that he gave me a little bit part in, and uh, he said that in Korea they were showing the movie around, and the people wanted to see if it was true, and so they wanted me to go so they could, you know, do the the, the pinch test and see if, you know, if, it, if I was real. And and now the bad thing is that when I come there and they see a 60-year-old man trying to impersonate a five-year-old boy in the in the poster, you know. I'm, it's a little bit hard to convince them that I'm that, uh, that fellow. But I went to Korea because I heard that they had lots of interesting food over there. <laughs> and customs. And you know what? In Korea, if you don't have at least four degrees, they don't consider you grown up. Now over here, we, we do it by size. So we've got a lot of very mature people here in North America. But, but over there, they do it according to how many degrees you have. So this man was in charge, and he took me, and we showed the movie one night, and um, I thought that was interesting, except that the, you know what the dress code in Korea is? <laughs> the man who, who was kind of keying me in on going to Korea said, uh, I said, okay, what's the dress code? And he said, how old are you? And I thought, what difference does that make? But, but there's a different dress code for each generation. And so when I told him that I was almost 60, he said, suit. I said, now you need to understand that here in North America, when you say suit, that means that the coat and the pants have to be the same cloth. And he said, yes, suit is good. Suit is not good. I didn't have a suit. <laughs> I didn't think I did. And then Jenny found out that I had bought a suit, a cheap suit for a wedding that I ended up not going to. So I had a suit that was five years old, brown. <coughs> Those are the cheap ones when you go buy a suit. And so I got out this suit, and uh, it wasn't fitting very well anymore. Suits are made out of cloth that shrinks over time, even if you don't wear them. So I took this, this old brown suit and, uh, and a couple of ties, and I went to Korea. And no kidding, I never saw the man who, who hosted me. I mean, I was with him morning all day, night, I never saw him without a suit and a tie. So I asked his daughter, who was interpreting for me, I said once, when does your father not wear a suit? And she said, I don't know. I said, well, when do you see him without a suit? And she said, never. So we're, I was trying to figure out, you know, where did they get the idea that if you're in ministry or if you're 60, that you have to wear a suit? Then I went to a museum, and I saw that in a museum, you know, it was, a, it was a museum of the history of the church in Korea, nobody was wearing suits except for a missionary named Underwood, a Presbyterian minister, uh, missionary, who went to Korea, and he was wearing a suit. Now, everybody in Korea who's involved in a church or has more than one degree, which means 
you know, if you're more than eight or nine, you, you qualify. You have to wear a suit and a tie. And I just really got tired of that. I'm not used to wearing a tie or a suit. And uh, so one night I told the interpreter, I said, no, you guys never used to wear suits. I'm not going to wear a suit tonight. Oh, he said, Stephen, we must or we will be offensive to the people. So I said, okay, we'll wear the suit and then we're going to take it off. <laughs> so this whole group of pastors, I took off my coat. You would have thought that I was, as our grandkids say, I don't know where they came up with this. I think it's a combination of dark and unclothed. They, they said, they call it pitch naked. <laughs> you thought I was pitch naked standing up there because I had taken my coat off. And I had some guys at the back close the doors. And then I took off my tie. And they were horrified. And then I made Moses, my interpreter, take off his coat and tie. You know where the, the custom of uh, suit and tie came from in Korea? Because missionaries went to Korea and they didn't just take the gospel, they took culture with them. And now the Koreans always, always, always wear suits and ties if they're involved in any ministry. Now I own two suits <laughs> because I had to go back to Korea and he, the guy in California that called me said, um, I think black with pinstripes would be better. I said, better than what? He said, better than brown old suit. Not <laughs> Fortunately, J.C. Penney's has this deal. $99, I was in and out in a half an hour, which is the ex extent of my tolerance for shopping in any store. And I had a new suit and went back to Korea. Uh, folks, the... Uh, the moral of that story is, when we go take the gospel, please, let's just take the gospel. Some of you are here a few years ago when Eddie uh, Katachungo was here and I interpreted for him. Remember he told us about how the missionaries came and told them to stop beating their drums because they beat their drums to call the evil spirits. And then they told them to stop dancing their dances because they uh, dance their dances. No, they beat their drums to call the evil spirits. They dance their dances to appease the evil spirits. And then they said, and don't sing your songs anymore because when we sing songs, our songs should glorify God, but their traditional songs glorified them. So for 70 years, they gave up their drums, their dancing, and their, their singing. And he said, then the missionary said, come with me, let's go worship God. And he said, we didn't have anything left to worship with. So the missionary said, now, good missionary, and he really appreciated, you, you heard him, he appreciated the missionary, but he said, the missionary said, oh, don't worry. I'm going to translate my book of Psalms into your language. And he said, but they broke all the rules of, lang or of song, of, of music in our culture. And uh, then he said, at least said something was profound. He said, what we didn't realize, because the missionaries didn't realize it, is that the gospel is like the pure water. And he picked up a picture up here on the, on the podium, and he started to pour it out. So I thought it was really cool into the uh, new wood parquet and actually we got a towel and dumped it down there. But he started pouring out the water and he said, what we thought is that the gospel was the water and the embossed and the pitcher. And he said, then we finally discovered what the missionary had understood, that the gospel is just the pure water and the embossed can be ours. 
He said, when we discovered that, we took the envase out of the missionaries, North American envase, and we put it in our envase, and he said, now we have the gospel in Tikkun culture. How did we get to that from um, Korea? <laughs> oh, you know what? The, the, uh, the man said one day, he said, uh, I said, okay, what are we going to do then? He said, now we're going to go to the seminary. I mean, how big is the seminary in Korea, right? So I figured, okay, this will be, be an easy one. So we walked into this little building. They packed more stuff in smaller space in Korea than I've ever seen before, except in Japan. So we walk in this little building. We come out into this auditorium. There's 3,500 people in this auditorium. And I'm sitting up in front. I'm going to speak to them. They're, they're students. Now, the faculty was sitting off segregated by themselves. 3,500 students. And while I'm sitting there, trying to get my thoughts organized, because I don't speak that much Korean. Changkumal Hamutseyu. No, Hamutseyu. Sorry about the S. That means I don't speak Korean. <laughs> I speak five other languages. I can pronounce it pretty well. So then after that, everybody was sure that I could speak Korean. But I was sitting there trying to figure out what I was going to say, and I'm looking out there, and suddenly I realized I'm the only person in the building without a theology degree. You talk about intimidating. Well, they didn't know that. And I had a suit and tie on, so they <laughs> Folks, a lot of us North Americans think we are the center of Christendom, and we think that we, we determine what missions is. Have you seen South Korea on the map? Not, not Korea, just South Korea. That little country is now sending as many missionaries into the world as the United States of America and Canada put together. Yeah, that's the good news. You know what the bad news is? That they're copying us. You think that we take our culture with us. I was down in the middle of Brazil at a uh, tribal conference. 65 tribes represented, and they thought I was tribal enough that they invited me. And uh, that night we had uh, communion. We drank acai juice, or red berry juice, and we ate manioc bread. And that day, everybody was wearing their tribal costumes, or I should say not wearing their tribal costumes. There were people wearing nothing but tufts of feather glued onto their body. And, and they started coming up to me and saying, you know, can we have our picture taken with you in, in Portuguese? And, and I thought, why do you want to have your picture taken with me? And finally, one fellow who <coughs> speak Portuguese with a little bit of Spanish mixed in, because I speak Portuguese with a little Spanish mixed in. He said, because you're Deja Salvaje. That means savage land. Now, I hadn't seen End of the Spear in Portuguese. That's what they call it, Deja Salvaje. And he said, because you're Deja Salvaje, and when we have our picture taken with you, then we show it to people, and then they'll know we're truly tribal. <laughs> How is that going to work? So I told him, I said, you know what, I'm sorry, I don't have my camera with me. And all these people wearing nothing but feathers, they all pull out a digital camera. Can you go back now and be iPhones? They all had cameras, so I had my picture taken over and over. I couldn't even eat my meals outside. I had to eat my meals back in the room because I couldn't get near the food. I was having my picture taken with 
hundreds and hundreds of tribal people from the Amazon who wanted to convince people that they, when they were dressed normally, that they were really tribal. So I guess by comparison, I guess they did look pretty tribal. Um, I was going someplace with that. Do you remember where we were going with that? Oh, yeah. So, but that night, while we're drinking acai juice and having communion with manioc bread, and everybody's undressed in their tribal way, they had a special treat. They had a, an intertribal youth choir come to sing for us. Tell me, would that be young people from six different tribes that came together to sing praises to God in Portuguese, none, which was not any of their traditional language. That wasn't their mother tongue for any of them. But guess who their choir director was? A Korean missionary. And so can you imagine what they came dressed in? Yes. The young women had long black skirts and starched white blouses. And the boys had white pants that were creased and starched and white shirts that were starched. And they all had on ties. And you know what? It just didn't work. <laughs> okay. When we go to take the gospel, let's take the gospel. And I would say leave the culture behind. But, but you know what? When you grow up in a culture, even some of us who are multicultural, the only difference between us is when we go someplace new, we just take multicultures instead of just one culture. You talk about confusing. The best way to do it is to go and plant the church and then leave and not, as Elise said, and not to go and try to make them like us because God never asked us to make people like us. He asked us to make people like his son Jesus. Who when he came, he took on the form that we had and he dressed like we did and he became concerned about the things that concerned us. And if we will take our medicine and if we will take our services to the world and we will emulate Jesus, I dare say that we will do a lot better. And if we do that, we won't have to stay too long because Jesus' commission to us was not to go and do everything for everybody everywhere forever. It was to go and make disciples. And then Jesus, because he knew that we were coming, North America had to come, he knew that, and so he... He repeated himself in verse 20 of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And he said, after he said, make disciples, you go and make disciples. And then he said, which is redundant, he said, and you teach them to do everything that I commanded you to do. Guys, that's discipleship. All right. Moving right along. Um, <coughs> India. I was in India um, this year. And do you have that piece? I'll, I'll get to it in just a minute. Um, I met a man in India who then I met in Atlanta. And uh, in Atlanta, a businessman friend, mutual friend of ours, asked me if I would give this man a copy of End of the Spear. So I did. He took it back to India and he started showing it in prisons and to uh, widow ministries. They have ministry to widows, women whose husbands have died and don't have means of support and things. And uh, what he told me later is he said that it, it had such an impact now. He was showing the movie, and then he was trying to narrate all the parts, you know, and explain to people what was happening, because um, some people in India speak English, but most of them speak a lot of other languages and not English. 
And uh, then one day it occurred to him, you know, this would be a lot more efficient if it was in their language. When somebody said to him, well, you have to have permission to translate language. Well, he said, this little boy gave me the movie. So I said, well, how much more authorization do you need? So he took it to some people and he got somebody to dub the uh, movie into the sphere into Marathi and then into Hindi. Now that's pretty cool because about one-sixth of the world's population speaks Hindi. So we're, we're talking, covering a good bit of the, uh, the world. And, uh, but then the businessman in Atlanta found out that they had translated this and he knew about intellectual property. He knew this isn't my story and it wasn't my movie. Somebody else made the movie. I mean, I helped them and I was there and I told the story and I wrote the book, but, but the movie, the rights of the movie are not mine. So he wrote to Nitten and said, Nitten, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You can't translate this and then make copies because the property is owned by uh, um, Bearing Fruit Productions, it was back then, now it's ethnographic media. And he said, you can't do that. And Nitten said, too late. <laughs> he said, we already did it and we made some copies. So this businessman called and said, hey, I think we got it stopped in time. They translated and they made a few, they made some copies, but they're just going to give them out, they're not going to sell them. So I go over to India and we're in Mumbai, uh, which is the only part of India that really doesn't belong to India. It's, it's quite western. And we went to this, uh, do you know about Bollywood? Have you seen, uh, oh, what is that? Uh, there's a movie, a, a chick flick. Um, yeah. Pride and Prejudice, Bollywood did a version of it, it's called Bride and Prejudice, it's really, it's really pretty good, isn't it? If you go to India, when you get halfway, they don't play any movies other than Bollywood movies anymore. So we went to this, this theater where a whole bunch of actors from Bollywood were coming, who make a lot more movies every year than we do, and uh, so they wanted me to speak after they showed the movie. So they showed the movie, and then I spoke a little bit, and, uh, and then they started handing out... Uh, the few copies of uh, End of the Spear in, uh, in Hindi that they had made. And then I realized they were taking them out of boxes. Now, I had gotten there a little bit early, and I saw these guys carrying these boxes into the theater, and I didn't know what they were, but I figured, you know, I can help. They were the heaviest boxes. I mean, they, they were much heavier than book boxes. They were only about this big, and just really heavy. You know what's really heavy? Thousands of pirated copies of End of the Spear. <laughs> Central India and uh, to five different cities to show End of the Spear in Marathi and Hindi once in each place. Now I've had a lot of interesting experiences, but the first place that we got to outside of Mumbai, we were in um, Nagpur, and I show up there and there's a whole bunch of dignitaries sitting on the platform. They go and have me sit by them. One fellow was a, a Buddhist uh, monk, I think is the word, and a and a Hindu priest, and there was a Muslim imam, and there was the head of the uh, school district in Nagpur. Now, Nagpur is a relatively small city of four and a half million in, in India, which is a pretty small city over there. And uh, then they started asking all these people to, you know, to give a word to the, uh, and I'm listening to, I mean, I've never been on a platform before with Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, animists, and Christians. 
Um, and it wasn't all that friendly, but nobody was shooting, nobody was fighting, but the audience was made up of all those different people too. And you know what happened? After they showed this pirated copy of End of the Spear in Marathi, the most incredible thing happened that I've ever seen. I was supposed to speak, but before I could speak, the, the, the monk and the priest and the imam and the, the head of the school district, they all said that they wanted to speak. And you know what they all said? Basically the same thing. They said, unless we learn to be reconciled to each other, India is going to come apart. And they said, here is an example of what can happen. And if it's the Christian's God that calls people to come together and forgive and to be reconciled instead of to kill each other, then we need to show this to the next generation. And the lady from the, the head of the school district in Nagpur said, I want this movie shown to all of the children from junior high and up in our school district. And then Nitin came to me and he said, Steve, Stephen G, G, G. Apparently the more times you say G, the more respectful. And, and he was trying to apologize. He said, Stephen G, 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 G. I took your movie and I translated it and I made copies, just a few. A million people, 6,000 copies wasn't that many. No, that was in that was in Marathi, and then about 10,000 in Hindi. And he said, "But we're giving them out, some, and maybe this will create a market." And he said, "Stephen G, please forgive me." And I said, "Nothing to forgive. You haven't taken anything from me." And he said. What shall we do now? And I said, well, Nitin, I have to be honest with you. I don't have the authority to give you permission to distribute these. But I'll be cow-kicked if I'm going to ask you not to. <laughs> so they went and printed 4,000 more. <laughs> and who knows how many. Um, I thought you'd want to see a pirated copy of Inland Spirit. We're just going to show you a minute. Because um, you haven't seen it now. Now, we're not going to play it like Pinky. There, they have a small screen and gigantic speakers. And if your body is not vibrating, it's not a good theater. I took a piece of uh, napkin and stuffed it in my ears to do it. And I didn't make it big. When you, when you use that, you need to make part of it big so it doesn't go all the way in. <laughs> it was three days before I could get that thing. Some people said, hey, Steve. Excuse me.
and they provided the money to dub this, not translated, no subtitles, it's all translated. It isn't even translated into Spanish, but it's translated into Hindi and Marathi. I love pirated copies of it. I know. Well, every time I get one, I send one to Mark Green. So he can show his family that after $20 million spent uh, making the movie, that it is being distributed. <laughs> Not very much by Fox Fade, but a whole lot by other people. Um, Alright, the next story I want to tell you about is, now this, you're going to have to, are you loosened up a little bit now? Because you're going to have to be a little bit loose for this next one. And, and the, the purpose of telling you this story is that, you know, I've been amazed to see who God uses. Haven't you? I mean, look at, look at us. God has used a bunch of us. We have a new sign at iTech. It's right, there's the iTech sign, Indigenous Peoples Technology and Education Center, and right down below is a big sign that says, we're a bunch of losers, because we're all on diets. Have you noticed? My son has lost 46, Ron lost 25, I have lost 60. In their case, it was pounds, in mine it was ounces. <laughs> A couple of days with uh, Joyce and Jerry, we go to the Cold Stone Creamery. That is the solution to all dieting. No matter how long you've been on a diet, it just And you don't have to eat the ice cream, you just walk in the door and it happens. Well, um, that introduction doesn't fit the story at all. But um, I was in California. Oh, a couple of years ago, and somebody said, Oh, Steve, Steve, have you seen the, the, the Japanese Black Gospel Choir? <laughs> I think I'm too old for that. I thought, if I just think about this, I think I can, I can, I can get my mind around this Japanese Black Gospel Choir. And finally, I just, I couldn't pull it up. All the, all the traveling stuff, I just couldn't pull up Japanese Black Gospel Choir. And so they said, you, have, you obviously haven't seen them. I said, no, not that I know of. I mean, but who knows? It could be Japanese Black Gospel Choirs hiding any place. I said, oh, Steve, they're on tour here in Southern California. I said, that's wonderful. I mean, strange things happen in California. Would, uh, would elect a uh, foreigner about this tall, who looks like me, I wish I'd look, for governor, and then re-elect him. It was because they couldn't understand him. He was offending them, but they didn't know what he was saying. So I figured, California, okay, I want to see the Japanese Black Gospel Choir. Unfortunately, they weren't performing, then they were on their way back to Japan. That's where the Japanese Black Gospel Choirs come from. And when I got to meet some of them, and, and some, I mean, like you. Now, what I'd really love to do is just leave it right there and go on to another story, because you folks would be worthless for the rest of this conference. <laughs> because you'd be in the middle of, uh, of uh, somebody's plenary address, and, and suddenly you think, Japanese Black Gospel Park. So, <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead, even though I'd rather not. Um, what I'm trying to, what this story illustrates, I think, is that God uses unlikely people. Now, if I was going to choose the most unlikely person for God to use in missions, it would probably be Richard Pryor. 
But if it wasn't Richard Pryor, it would be... Oh, I forgot her name. Whoopi Goldberg. Okay, now, now, now really honestly, just give it a couple of seconds and try to imagine Whoopi Goldberg in missions. Yeah, no, I couldn't do it either. Um, but you know what? I met a couple of Filipinos, a man and a woman, a couple who were Filipinos, whose parents emigrated from the Philippines to North America. And they, but they brought their children up in the Filipino culture in North America, so they speak Filipino and they speak English. And they both became nightclub singers. Now, that's where they met. So it, it just happened they were both nightclub singers, and they met. And then they came to faith. They came to the United States, then they came to the nightclub, then they came to faith. And as a married couple, they felt God calling them into missions. Now, if you're Filipino and you understand the Filipino culture and you know the Filipino language, where is the obvious place to go, for you to go as a missionary? Japan. Exactly. So they raised a gazillion dollars a month and then they went to Japan as missionaries. But then they had the shock of their life when they got to Japan, they found out that the Japanese are not like the Filipinos. Now the Filipinos are warm and friendly and cuddly and you go into a Filipino house and you can just take over. If you ask them to leave, they probably would. That's not what happens in Japan. In Japan, the house is not something, a place where you gather. You gather in a bar, you gather in a, a nightclub, you do not gather in people's homes. Well, these this Filipino couple, they went over there, they were there for like two years, and they never even made friends with anybody. And they're friendly kind of people. They had nothing to do, and they had raised all this money, they spent all this time learning a little bit of Japanese, so when they got over there, they could, you know, move and make friends and be invited into people's homes and start home Bible studies and then start a church. Zero. Two years. Even God didn't know what to do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think God... So, you know what God did? When God has a sense of humor, so God decided to use Whoopi Goldberg to come to the rescue. Now, most of you won't want to admit this, but a lot of you have seen Sister Act, right? <laughs> well, Whoopi Goldberg made this movie, Sister Act, where she's, uh, she's fleeing from the mob, and she goes and she's hiding in this nunnery. Well, the nuns are having want to enter a choir competition, and they find out that Whoopi Goldberg is a nightclub singer, so they have her become the, the instructor, and then the mob finds them when they're in the big, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the Super Bowl of, uh, of choir competition, and so there's all this stuff, you know, they're chasing her, they're trying to shoot her, and the nuns are trying to protect her and stuff. Well, now, that, that movie did okay here in the States, but when it hit Japan, it was a phenomenon. I mean, people were going to watch this, like we went to watch uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, I mean, just over and over and over. And they were going, and you know what they wanted to do then? The Japanese decided they wanted to learn how to sing black gospel. Only one problem. Who's going to teach you to sing black gospel in Japan? Two Filipino nightclub singers. Absolutely nothing to do. So they started a, a Japanese black gospel choir. I kid you not. So they started this choir, but the people would come for two or three sessions and then they wouldn't come back again. And so they thought, well, they're losing interest. So they asked them the Japanese, you know, why aren't the people coming back? They seemed so enthusiastic. And they said, because you're offending. 
said, how? I mean, we're doing what they asked us to do. And they said, no, no, no. Because you're making them indebted to you. And, and they're losing face because of that. And I said, what are we doing? He said, you aren't charging them. You're giving them lessons in how to sing Japanese black gospel, but you're not charging them. So I said, so what do we do? And the Japanese said, charge them. So they started charging $10 a lesson for all these Japanese ones. And then they all came, and then they brought their friends. So they had to split into two choirs, and three choirs, and four choirs. <coughs> when I got them, there were 20 Japanese black gospel choirs. <laughs> But you know, there was another problem. They realized, unless you understand the gospel, you can't really sing black gospel. You've got to understand the pain and the ethos of black gospel to, to sing black gospel. So they started dividing the lessons that these people are paying for into one hour session where they teach them the gospel. And then one where they teach them to sing black gospel. You have not seen black gospel until you see a bunch of stiff Japanese doing that. <laughs> it's called the Japanese fault. And they're paying for it. You know what their next big problem was? By the time they had 10 or 15 choirs, they had all this money and they didn't know what to do with it. So they decided, well, now see, there was teaching them the the gospel, and so some of the people were coming to faith, so they decided we'll rent a, uh, a hall and we'll start a church. Now in Japan, when you rent a hall, I mean, it's like you have to, I was going to say own General Motors, but no, if you own General Motors, you couldn't rent a hall in Japan. <laughs> but they decided to rent a hall in Japan, and the Japanese said, no, we want a church. The Japanese are smart enough to know that if, the, if these Filipino missionaries from North America and Japan rented the hall, it would be their church and not the Japanese church. So the Japanese went out and they rented the hall. But then they weren't satisfied. They didn't want to just sing black gospel. They wanted to have concerts in black gospel. They wanted people to come and see what they could do. So they all started inviting their families and they wanted to charge them because they wanted their families to know that they were worth paying to see. And then the Japanese started sharing the gospel that they had learned with their families. And that wasn't enough. Then they wanted to go on tour. So these Filipinos, they were pretty smart. So they started the three S tours. It's called sightseeing, shopping, and singing tours. And they came to where else? Where do people know black gospel? The United States, right? So these Japanese black gospel choirs started coming to tour the United States, and they were they were lining up concerts in churches so they could sing to the choir. And these people are singing black gospel, but but with very few exceptions, they're not they're not God followers. And they're singing to the choir, and then the choir would take them home and show them what a Christian family looked like and what interaction with other Christians was like. And these people are paying for this. <laughs> they still have the problem. They, they, had, they said at one time they had like twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a month coming in, and they were afraid that their supporters would find out that they're. <laughs> I mean, it would be like many hand missionary. <laughs> Benihan and I are friends. But he didn't give me the house when he left for life. Anyway, but. 
Smetham, they gave me a DVD. And it was, I mean, letters and, the, you know, the... Now, if a Japanese does more than this, they break. <laughs> but they found a new lubricant. And they sent me a new DVD. And I just think that this conference would not be complete unless we got to see Never listen. 
they come to fix us. Um, now, the only thing that's a little bit awkward with that is that Kenya, I believe, is the most Christian nation. There's a percentage of the population, more people in Kenya are God followers, accepting the Bible as the only rule of faith and conduct than any country in the world, and definitely more than ours. If you don't believe that, I suggest that you go on uh, the CNN and look up a movie that CNN just did, a little television piece that they did on our flying car, the Maverick, and see, they, they have a big article on the CNN um, website, and then people were allowed to make comments. Now, the article was about a flying car. You know what 95% of the comments were about? It was about the, the atrocities that Christians commit by going and trying to dominate people and forcing their religion down their throat and forcing their their culture on people and not leaving them alone to live these delightful, Edenic lives that they otherwise would be able to know. The ignorance that people in North America are willing to express publicly is, is astounding. Somebody even wrote me and said, how dare you spell Waodani, W-A-O-D-A-N-I, when it should be W-A- Oh, H-U-A-O-R-A-N-I. I guess they do. H-U-A-O-R-A-N-I is the Spanish spelling of Waurani. The Waurani have no R in their language. I know because the lady that, that rendered Waurani to an orthography uh, was my aunt, and she told me that when she tried that, that the, that the Latins who surround the Waurani always call them Waurani, and they're not Waurani, they're Waudani. So they took the R out. But, but this fellow knew more than I did. I mean, he's, he has the internet. Were we going to another story? Oh, CNN. So, um, at any rate, now, guys, I really, from the time I was young, I wanted to serve God. My aptitude lies primarily in finance. That's the thing. I mean, from the time I was a little kid, I mean, when I was eight years old, I was playing the monetary exchange between supers and dollars because they would fluctuate. And I found out that if I would wait until the super went up and I bought dollars, then when the super went down, the dollar went up which it doesn't do anymore, but it did back then. <laughs> then I would buy Supri's, and I, and I was making more money than my friends were, and all I was doing was going, you know, once every two or three days and exchanging my dollars for Supri's and stuff like that. Now, that word got out, and Ecuador has now changed their monetary system to the dollar so that I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> Seriously, if you go to Ecuador now, you, you, you spend dollars. Um, but, so when I went to college, I studied economics and business administration because that was my aptitude, and I knew that God was going to use me in that, and sure enough, I went into business, but I wanted to con make a contribution to the church, so I went to the uh, College of Financial Planning, and I got my master's degree as a, I, I got a certification as a financial planner, CFP designation, it's like a CPA, only it's uh, only... <coughs> We don't know what we're doing. We just we got a designation. So I got a designation because God had a plan, and He has He has used that to show me how ridiculous it is for me to plan to do something for God. 
Because what God had in mind for me was doing things like developing portable dental systems and IC systems and and the little thing that we've been working on for the last six years, um, a flying car. And uh, to, to get to the point where you're willing to design a flying car, you have to have done something significant to prepare yourself to serve God um, and then find out that God didn't want you to use you in that way um, so that you can go and finally, finally, now take some of us a little bit longer than others and say, God, what are, you, what are you doing that you'd like me to do? Now see, I thought that the North American way was, and the North American way is, that we go out and we decide what we're going to do for God, and then we go and tell God to do it, and then we start telling Him what we need to do, what we're going to do for Him. Like we need money, and we need people, and we need things like that. Well, I have spent the last six years of my life, um, now, not completely, but... When you get to my age, you not only work during the day, but at night you're going to be up anyway. So you you, you have a second half career at night. And uh, if you get if you get emails from me and they're written at three o'clock in the morning, um, I wasn't just wasting my time. I have an office at home. It's very small. Um, when you turn on the light, the fan comes on. Then, you know that's kind of thing. So, so I'm probably in my in my office writing you, but. Um, you know what? You know what has really surprised me now? I know that people have been trying to develop flying cars for years and years and years. It's been a dream. Every one of you who has been in a traffic jam more than once has dreamed about pulling off on the shoulder and just flying away. And some of you, now there's very few in this room who remember this, but you remember the Jetsons? Tell me that you didn't want to do that, right? Well, I just got a chance to do it. And so that's what I've been doing for life. But you know what? Another thing that I've wanted to do but absolutely could not figure out a way to do is I have noticed, and if you, don't, if you haven't noticed this, then go to that CNN blog and see what people have to say about missionaries. I have dreamt that one day I might have a small part in getting the world to see Christians as reasonable people and not bottom feeders. And... Uh, I just couldn't think, I mean, how do you get the world's attention? Because if they're predisposed, and North America is predisposed, the two worst people in the world to most secular North Americans are the oil companies who destroy environment and missionaries who destroy culture. Now, most of those people who go to picket against the oil companies drive their hydrocarbon burning cars, um, or they... they um, they recharge them at night from uh, coal-fired lanterns. You know, so it's, it's, they're not completely as purist as they would like. But uh, you know what? Since we started um, developing this flying car, we've started getting inquiries from secular groups who wanted to know if we were really doing it. Um, last year, Popular Mechanics came down, and uh, they sent a crew down to do an article on, the, on, a, on a flying car, and they were having a hard time finding a flying car that actually would drive and fly, and then somehow they heard about us, and so they came down, and they started just, I mean, asking us all kinds of questions about the flying car, 
And then pretty soon, what happened was they started asking about, why are you building a flying car in a nonprofit organization? So we started telling them, well, it's, you know, we're really designing it for people in frontier areas. And then we were surprised. Now, they didn't tell us what the article was going to be in, so you know, we waited and bated breath to see what would happen. And um, now, now, popular mechanics doesn't usually have articles about missions in it. And this is an article about flying cars, but uh, the cover is this little boy standing in coveralls watching a little yellow plane landing. And now that's the first two pages. And then there's another page here that has a missionary on it, uh, Nate Saint, a little boy sitting with a man who apparently speared his father. And then finally on page four we get to the flying car, but the article is still about missions. And then on the last two pages it has a picture of the flying car flying over central Florida, and it finally gets to the flying car part. And now the, the young man, the professional writer that wrote this article, was so impacted by the story, not my story, it was God's story, that now he has asked permission to uh, write a book, and he is looking for a publisher who will um, pay him for two years so he can research this thing. And I said, well, I want to do that. He said, no, Steve, because if you write it, there's only a certain audience that will read it. He said, when I write it, it will have credibility with a much, much broader audience. Um, it's in the current issue of uh, sport aviation, and our local our local magazine in uh, Central Florida wanted to do an article. And I thought, you know, hey, what can they do? Uh, yeah, a six-page article, and most of it is on missions. Uh, talk about the IC, IDENT, IFIX, IFLY program. Six pages there. Um, now. It finally even went to the point where Christianity Today decided to do an article on missions, and they were afraid that nobody would read it. And uh, before I show you this video, uh, James, would you stand up? That's that's my son, Jamie. called Life University. We have, at iTech, we've spent 15 years developing programs so that people like you can take these programs as door openers and multipliers into foreign countries. And then people started coming to us not too long ago and saying, don't forget about the United States. So now we're developing programs that churches can use to reach out into their own communities. And Jamie's heading that up. But um, I just thought that in closing, we should show you um, the flying car because most people that we talk to don't believe it until they see it. Uh, Monday, Discovery Channel is coming down um, to do a program on the flying car. And you know what? There has not been one negative comment either about missions or about iTech or any affiliates that we have yet, even in CNN. Now, I don't have television, so I don't watch it, but I've been told that CNN is not owned and run by the church, so <laughs> we're going over so you need to leave, but I think this is about three minutes long. I think that there should be one in your drive. How many of you can drive an automatic transmission car? This drives the same way and it flies the same way. The only thing is that in the air, the brake doesn't work. The only, thing is, the only controls you have is the steering wheel and an accelerator. What do you have there?
So, if you'd like one for Christmas, let me know who to send the bill to. Let's not put God in a box. And let's not go out and do big things for Him. Let's ask Him what He's doing and what He would be willing to use us to do for Him. Thank you all for coming.